Howdy, this is Jim Rutt, and this is The Jim Rutt Show. Listeners have asked us to provide pointers to some of the resources we talk about on the show. We now have links to books and articles referenced in recent podcasts that are available on our website. We also offer full transcripts. Go to jimrutshow.com. That's jimrutshow.com. This is another in our extra COVID-19 related mini podcasts. Today's guest is Michelle Gervin, a physics professor at the University of Maryland College Park campus and external faculty at the Santa Fe Institute. Uh, she's also one of the uh, strongest researchers in the area of network science that I know of. And I've asked her to come on today to talk a little bit about uh, networks and network propagations of epidemiology and uh, what we have to think about on the backside of the curve in terms of dynamic responses uh, to manage this disease on the network. Uh, Michelle, take it away. Why don't you talk to us a little bit about uh, the very basics of network science, uh, how diseases propagate on a network, and how changes in the nature of the network, such as through so uh, social distancing, uh, can change the dynamics of uh, network propagation of a disease. Thanks, Jim, for having me here. I am delighted to be here to talk about applying network science to this pandemic that we're experiencing. You know, what's interesting for me from a modeling perspective is how much the general public is starting to learn about mathematical modeling. So that's really exciting to me to see news articles in the Washington Post and the New York Times talking about these SIR models, susceptible, infected, recovered, and talking about modeling parameters and quantities like R0. So that's probably what some of you have seen a bunch in the news. R0 is the average number of people infected when one person gets infect infected. And this is at the start of the disease before you have any herd immunity. And herd immunity, another term you've probably heard, is something where a lot of people who have contracted the disease, um, can that can slow down the spread because there aren't so many susceptibles. So let's go back. So that's some of the basics of you know, Epidemics 101. But Epidemics 101 really thinks about a fully mixed population. So every person uh, is sort of equally likely to interact with every other person. They have a certain number of connections um, on average, and everyone has about the same number of connections. So what's important from a network science perspective is to think about heterogeneities in the, in the connection patterns between people. So one of the most important heterogeneities is degree distribution. So some people have huge numbers of connections while most people have lower kind of more average numbers of connect or um, more typical numbers of connections, just a, a few strong connections. And that really changes the spreading pattern. 
So if you consider a network where everybody has the same number of connections compared to a network where they're the same total number of connections in the system, but some people have a much bigger share of those connections. So consider those two networks, the first homogeneous network and the second a heterogeneous network. So it turns out if you do the math, spreading on the heterogeneous network is much more rapid and you end up with a much greater fraction of the population infected. So the reason being is that um, those people who have a high number of connections, they're likely to get the disease and then because they have a high, uh, high number of connections, they're also likely to spread the disease really quickly. So this is one of the parts that's not mentioned so much in this great news coverage about mathematical modeling, that not only do we have to think about R-naught and this, this, the average properties of the network, but we have to think about the heterogeneous properties of the network. And that's where like closing schools comes in and is important because schools are a big source of heterogeneity. Right, because school children interact really strongly with one another. You have it's kind of like a source of of giving people a lot of connections. And so closing these large things, shutting down big conferences, part of that intervention strategy is not to really change the average properties, but to cut off that high end, that tail end of the distribution, which is so responsible for spreading. So, like, for instance, at a conference with a thousand people who are jammed into a, uh, a room and are shoulder to shoulder in the hospitality suite afterwards, uh, man, that's a mixing bowl for viruses big time that's very different than sort of the average uh, interactions that we might have on the street. Is that, is that what you're getting at? Absolutely. Absolutely. And so these, there, there can be two ways that this happens. Because we have these highly clustered interactions like conferences, or because we might have individuals that we would call super spreaders um, who just go around and are connected to so many people. So it's those that tail end that we really want to control in our network type interventions. And another, one way to think about the network science part of this uh, is to realize that on average, your friends have way more friends than you do. This is the friendship paradox in network science. And I think it's like the first thing that you should learn if you're trying to wrap your mind around network science. So yeah, say more about that. I remember reading about that uh, early on when I started digging into network science back in the early double aughts. And I was going, what? How could that possibly be true? And then I worked through the math and I go, yep, for the average person, it's true. Could you uh, uh, run through a simple example or, or illuminate that for us a little bit? Uh, sure. I mean, so, so we all think of ourselves as average and, you know, we probably think of our friends as average. And so our friends are just like us, right? But Consider Facebook, for example. If you go and if you're on Facebook and you look at what your number of friends are and you look through all your friends and find out their average number of friends, probably that average is gonna be a lot higher than your own number of friends. And the reason is, because an average person in the network, you take the whole network, you pick a person at random, you look at that person's number of friends, 
that's different than following a random link. So picking a random one of your own friends by following a link from you to them, that link is followed preferentially by their number of connections. So because there are some people who have so many more connections, you're way more likely to be connected to somebody who has lots of connections. So then when you take a step back and look at it, the average number of connections of your friends, you really expect that to be a lot higher than the average number of connections of an individual or the number of connections that you have. Yep, that makes actually makes perfect sense when you think about it from that way. And that's one of the things why network science was such a huge contribution to the intellectual working capital of the human race is that it produces very actionable uh, insights such as that that are not intuitive. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's a first way for people to understand network science and to realize, oh, when we're thinking about these epidemiological models, if we just do everything at the population average level, we're missing a lot of important elements that really change the behavior of the, of the, the whole in system and the course of disease spread. And I'm really glad that we uh, have a number of people, particularly in our Santa Fe Institute community, who are uh, bringing advanced epidemiological modeling uh, with a network understanding on top of it, because uh, you know, that provides as, you know, a very different view rather than using these population averages. Could you now uh, address a little bit about how things like social distancing, either you know, low-end social distancing, like staying six feet apart, uh, and more radical, such as stay-at-home orders, how they change the, the literal nature of the network and what impact they are likely to have on the spread of the disease? That's a really good question. And there are a couple ways in which they change the nature of the spreading pattern. So in these network models of disease spread, you have a lot of different parameters. Not only do you have the network structure, who's connected to whom, but you also have parameters of the dynamics of the disease, the probability of transmission along an edge. So this staying six feet apart from, from one another, if you still are going about and interacting with the same people, like you're going to work, but you're staying far apart from one another, that's really changing the probability of spreading between people. Now, it's also in part changing the network because it's giving you fewer opportunities to interact kind of casually um, with people you might interact with in a normal situation. But what really changes the network is these lockdown situations where you're staying at home, you're completely reducing the number of connections you have. So not only have you changed the probability of transmission, but you've changed the network topology. Yep. And so, for instance, if we think about our relationships with uh, everybody we know, uh, it's a link between, let's say, you and me. And if uh, the nature of the link right now is you and I uh, going out to have dinner in a, uh, at a restaurant where we're sitting uh, 18 inches apart, uh, the dynamics of how the disease spreads probabilistically is one thing. If you and I are talking over Zoom, it's entirely different. So uh, if instead of doing this uh, via Zoom, we did it face-to-face, -face, uh, we would be changing the nature of propagation on the network. Exactly. Okay. And so that each one of these essentially is changing the property of the link. Uh, we, stop, we don't stop knowing people, so our social graph in some sense is still 
unchanged, but the properties of the graph, uh, the properties of each link uh, change as we social distance. Right. And I like to think about it as we have, you know, our underlying social interaction network, and then we have a subset of that network, the network along which the transmission can spread. So if you, if we're, we have a social connection, but that connection's only being realized virtually, that's not a potential link for spreading. Right. And as people uh, switch from physical presence to virtual presence, uh, I'm you know, sort of thinking in my head of nodes and links, you know, the nature of the links changes. It now becomes impossible for, uh, you know, Jim to give Michelle uh, COVID-19 uh, because we've switched from a face-to-face -face meeting to a Zoom meeting. And the more of those that change, uh, literally the uh, propensity to propagate on the network changes very considerably. And another thing that we really have to think about is that the networks adapt in response to the spreading patterns. Now, one thing I think that we as a community have been doing pretty well is cutting down the number of visits to doctor's offices uh, where you have questionable symptoms and you might then then healthy people who might get the disease at a doctor's office. So there have been various policies, suggestions, call your doctor from home, a move to move to telemedicine instead of in-person visits because, you know, what happens is when people are sick, they go to the doctor uh, and maybe they're sick with coronavirus, but maybe they're sick with a common cold. And then, you know, if you, they're all meeting, especially this is a high density of people who have COVID-19 in a small space that really increases the transmission. So I think that's one thing we've actually been doing right is keeping people from going directly to the doctor's office and trying to cut off some of the spread that happens in that way. Yep, I and, the, and this is, of course, is for people who have just mild symptoms. Yeah, I'll give you a perfect example. So we talked about uh, pre-roll on the show. My uh, daughter's like 25 weeks pregnant and fingers crossed, been a very healthy, non-problematic pregnancy. And uh, her and her doctor uh, negotiated changing uh, many of her uh, normal check-in visits from in-office to telemedicine uh, for exactly that reason. Uh, the, you know, the benefit of a routine office visit for a healthy pregnancy is not zero, but it's not huge compared to uh, a telemedicine. And the risk is significant. So the math works out through telemedicine. Right. On the other hand, if she were to have a complication, she'd, of course, go to the doctor or the hospital because at that point, the, uh, the risk reward works the other way. And, you know, so humans are smart. We're, you know, smart, adaptive agents and we are making uh, those changes. Uh, again, as we talked about in the pre-roll, both of us are now using uh, order in advance, pick up at the grocery store, uh, quarantine the food in a cooler for a day, uh, et cetera. And that's sort of bottom up self-organizing, modifying the network. You know, my relationship to my grocery store is now a, a much less uh, powerful vector for uh, viral spread. Right. Absolutely. I, um, but I do wonder about some of these changes. Have they gone far enough? I mean, certainly there we need our healthcare workers to keep going. We need our grocery workers to keep going. But are we putting enough measures in to protect those people? Because they are interacting with so many people every day. 
today? And what else can we do to change their transmission parameters to help protect them? Also, you know, I I'm kind of luckily removed from manufacturing processes and things like that. But are the plants that are manufacturing these goods, what are what are the network properties of the individuals who are, who are doing this important work during this time? And how can we protect them better? Yeah. And of course, a lot of that, uh, a different topic, but something, uh, you know, near and dear to a complexity science perspective is, uh, unfortunately, our hyper-capitalist short-term money on money return society has uh, engineered everything for efficiency and not for robustness. Uh, you know, for instance, uh, we know these plagues are coming. Look at the uh, the data on respiratory uh, illnesses and the number of cases. Uh, and if you assume a fat tail distribution, which certainly seems reasonable, something like this is very predictable to have happened. Someone who was thinking in terms of robustness and complexity would have stockpiled billions of face masks, right? Uh, you know, tens of thousands of ventilators, body suits. And so these issues of our poor healthcare workers having to expose themselves, and a lot of them are heroes. I mean, my uh, sister-in-law is a nurse practitioner and a heroic medical person who's putting her life on the line literally uh, every day to help her patients. I would have felt a hell of a lot better. And we've actually, you know, sent her masks and things like that. My brother sent her some masks. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, if we've been a smart, robust and resilience thinking society, we would have prepared for this. Right, absolutely. Uh, and right now, that could be a big weakness that we have in our system, because that's a point, right? So while everything else is closed down, it's these mega centers like hospitals where there is a big possibility for continued spread of the disease. And if we're not, if we don't have enough equipment to make those precautions, we're not cutting off that tail like we need to. Yeah, and as you would say, from a network perspective, those are, you know, high mixing nodes with a high propensity of sick people, right? So uh, just what you don't want. Absolutely. And another thing that I've seen recently, and this is not related to my expertise in network science, so, but I think it's an interesting feature that's not been included in a lot of the modeling is the level of exposure that people have. So, you know, healthcare workers, they can get much high, they can be exposed to much higher doses of the virus as compared to somebody who gets it from a surface. And as I've read, again, not an expert in this, that uh, how sick you get for many types of viruses is strongly correlated with that level of exposure. So it's also something we can be, we should be taking into account. Yes, in fact, uh, a mini podcast like we are publishing today from Robin Hansen, uh, we discuss in considerable detail uh, dose response and uh, what might seem uh, paradoxical uh, uh, guidance that comes from that. You know, for instance, he's a famous iconoclast and he uh, talks about, uh, you know, maybe young people should voluntarily get the illness, be paid a, a small premium for doing so and be given a card that shows they're immune. Uh, and uh, maybe people shouldn't shelter in place at home because if one person in the house gets it, uh, the dosage level in the house is going to be very high. So, uh, you know, that's it's an area that I'd like to see some of our modelers uh, uh, you know, hop on thinking about this dose response possibility, and maybe it produces some, uh, you know, uh, non-intuitive uh, ways of responding. Yes, and, it, and you also mentioned something that's really important, and part of the next step out of this 
quarantine situation, which is knowing who's who had the infection, right? So a lot of these different strategies, like, you know, getting the virus, which I'm not sure is a good strategy. I'm not condoning that at the moment. Uh, but a lot of these different strategies are predicated on knowing who was infected and who wasn't. So I think that that's going to be a really important part in designing our way out of this after it, you know, if we're successful in flattening the peak, which it seems like there's good effort in this area that these, the, you know, quarantining efforts are making a difference, but then what's next and how can we plan for what's next without the ability to test who's had the, who's had the disease or not. Uh, ah, that's exactly right. That's a good time to transition to the second topic, which is managing the backside of the curve. Uh, that's now where all my attention is in terms of actual uh, work, trying to figure out what guidance to give to government, uh, not-for-profits, et cetera. And uh, I feel like we're way behind the curve on managing the backside of the curve. And it's going to be more difficult, require more, uh, you know, a more aggressive, intellectually deep mindset than managing the front side, which has been, you know, essentially fairly straightforward. Break the network, smash the, uh, the curve. Uh, doing the dance on the backside is going to be very, very tricky if we're going to avoid uh, the historical second peak, you know, in the famous uh, influenza of uh, 1918, which this is probably closest to in magnitude. Uh, the second peak, uh, you know, four, five, six months later, killed more people than the first peak. Uh, and there are ideas about how we uh, you know, be much more dynamic on our social distancing so we can take it off in some places and bring it on in others. Uh, but that's going to require data and dynamic decision making. Could you talk a little bit about the, you know, the network science and any thoughts you have on managing the backside of the curve until we have a vaccine? That is such an important question. And as you mentioned, so much harder to answer. So from a mathematical modeling perspective, whether we're doing this like mixed, fully mixed population assumption, or whether we're adding in some of the details of the network structure and the heterogeneities where some people have lots of connections, but most people have a lower number. So Regardless of what approach you take, in the beginning, it's much easier to capture this because you can make an assumption that almost everybody is susceptible, right? And then as many, as a significant fraction of your population gets infected with this and then recovers, uh, modeling that side of things is much harder. And it's much harder in this scenario when you have the hidden variables, that you don't know the states of individuals, whether they're, they've recovered or not, or whether they were never infected. And so the mathematical modeling is more complicated um, because for two reasons. You can't just consider everybody to be susceptible. And, but the main, the really harder part of ma connecting mathematical modeling with intervention strategies is you need to know what class each of your people, uh, the individuals are in. Are they still susceptible or are they recovered? And now hopefully, as we've heard enough of that, you know, there is evidence that they should be immune at least for a while. Yep. 
Uh, and you know, again, this is uh, multidimensional analysis, which unfortunately our society isn't great at. Uh, and you know, we need to have uh, disease testing to catch people with symptoms to crack down on them quickly after the fact. And as you point out, uh, the immunity testing would be huge to you know certify people to work in dangerous, virologically dangerous frontline positions. You know, uh, wouldn't it be great if uh, there were a ID certificate that said I am immune and uh, let those people go back to work as Uber drivers and uh, working as the sc store clerks, etc. Uh, and uh, the other thing is this monitoring so that we can bring our resources to bear. And I will say there's one hopeful part of this as I've been thinking about the network dynamics. Let's say the smashing the curve works. We see a crash in the number of uh, uh, new cases to gets down to a very low number in June, late June and early July, uh, uh, but we ramp up testing. Then when the inevitable hotspots re-flare up, they're going to be small at first, and, we'll hit when, and yet we've built up this big reserve of ventilators and 15-minute uh, you know, test equipment. We should be able to mobilize them very rapidly, if necessary, have the Marine Corps fly them in on helicopters and swarm these new hotspots uh, with 15-minute uh, tests. Uh, you know, with uh, antibody testing, uh, et cetera, and if we need to, shut them back down again. Maybe it's just a county, you know, a little county in West Virginia that somehow never had any disease at all, so has no immunity. Uh, somehow somebody visits from someplace, gets started, flares up. But if we do a high enough level of testing, uh, you know, we'll be able to detect it early, and because we've already mobilized all the equipment and stuff, we can fly it in and squash it. Uh, but to do that requires a war-fighting, data-driven, model-driven mentality, uh, which so far is only slowly spinning up. Absolutely. I mean, it really has to be an organized effort. Um, so two things that you touched on, which really uh, I think are worth emphasizing and thinking about more. You know, I love this idea of doing antibody testing. Um, you know, there is a little bit of a concern that people who want to go back to work will intentionally get the virus so that they can now be card-carrying, certified, recovered. Uh, so that's something to worry about. And then another thing is to think about the timing and to use some of these mathematical network-based models to really time the intervention strategies and uh, the social distancing requirements at various times. Because what I suspect on the back side of the curve, also as it was on the front side of the curve, you need to start changing people's behavior before it looks bad, right? Absolutely. Before, you know, the hospital system is overwhelmed. And it's kind of hard to convince people to change their behavior when things aren't looking too bad. Uh, so the timing of those strategies is something that we really need this combination of data analysis and mathematical modeling to get right. Yeah, in fact, uh, Jessica Flack told me uh, in an interview I did the other day, uh, I can't find it on the internet, but she said that Paul Romer was suggesting that it was worth economically worthwhile to do uh, what was it, 20 million tests a day uh, so that we had essentially instant information on any flare-up. Uh, so we're not waiting for, you know, hospitals to be overrun, but we find in this county in West Virginia, three cases where there had been none for, uh, you know, six months. And then we immediately marshal the resources to squash it. So it's a, 
you know, you, you have modeling, you and you have data, and you have the ability to instantly respond, and you don't wait for weeks to go by for these massive, for these high volume signals to occur. And it's kind of an interesting idea. And you know, I think he said it would cost three hundred fifty billion dollars or something, but it'd be money well spent. Uh, so I think this kind of thinking is what managing the backside of the curve is going to be all about. Right. Absolutely. I hadn't thought about how that investment might be really sensible from, from an economic payoff. Uh, certainly from, from an ability to change the backside of the curve, absolutely it's going to change things. And so I think it is a good investment because by waiting and having to quarantine and shut so many things, big, so many um, industries down, it's a huge economic impact. But if we could have really large scale testing, I mean, it would be very costly, but it's great, you know, to really see that analysis done um, to, to see the economic benefits of that. Yeah, I've, and I, you know, look at the stock market alone. How much has it lost? Six trillion dollars, something like that. Uh, and that's, uh, you know, uh, uh, two hundred million, a two hundred billion dollar year investment in absolutely ubiquitous testing. Uh, shit, uh, it'd be a, a damn cheap to get our economy uh, back to work. And uh, this kind of thinking, informed by modeling and, and exactly the kind of uh, network analysis combined with epidemiology that we've been talking about, is what we need to be driving uh, whoever is in charge of thinking through the strategy on the backside of the curve. And I wonder if we could get companies involved, like big companies involved in this somehow, to say, well, you guys could send your full workforce back to work if you agree to pay for the testing. Yep, that, and that, frankly, I've been you know, write, uh, writing down business ideas that this uh, epidemic uh, produces, and one of the ones near the top of the list is a business that does nothing but certify people uh, to be for their immunity. And uh, so a company could hire this company, uh, you know, Rutco, for uh, $100 per employee uh, to certify them uh, as immune. And of course, we have to have some caveats. Tests aren't always accurate, but uh, if you wanted to be more accurate, you have them tested twice, right? Uh, and we'll charge you two hundred dollars, and that will uh, take the uh, you know the, the basically the product of uh, of the error rates, and so the error rate goes way down. Uh, and you also want to certify. You also want the company to monitor people who are susceptible and continually monitor them. So it'd be nice for them to be able to go back to work too. But we're trying to guarantee a pre pretty safe environment and to do this we keep testing the susceptibles all the time yeah that's the paul romer argument. 20 million tests a, a week a day i think it was it's a crazy number but you're basically constant surveillance everywhere so it's yeah. relatively safe to go back to your office as long as you know that if sally at the other end of your floor uh is uh, got the disease even though she's pre-symptomatic uh, and is then told she has to go quarantined for 15 days, your risks go way, way down. And if, you know, if you're young and healthy, it probably makes sense to go back to work. So again, you know, thinking holistically about networks, propagations, interventions, testing, mobilization, 
I believe that if we did this right, we could manage the backside of the curve so that we did not get a second peak until the vaccine gets here. But it will require a very fancy dance to do it. And I sure the hell hope the powers that be are able to organize uh, a set of talent, skills, uh, analysis, and action taking sufficient to do this. It's doable. And uh, it will allow our economy to restart. It'll save probably at least as many deaths and disabilities as have happened from the first wave, but it's going to require uh, smarter footwork than we've seen on the front side. I totally agree. The backside is the challenge that we all need to put our minds to now. Okay. Well, uh, thank you, uh, Michelle. This has been a wonderful episode, exactly what I was hoping. But before we sign off, I'd like you to uh, tell our audience about a, uh, a Zoom-based course uh, that you guys are offering on network epidemiology. So I direct uh, the COMBINE program at the University of Maryland. COMBINE stands for Computation and Mathematics in Biological Networks. So network epidemiology is an important focus within the field of biological networks. And uh, when we shifted to an online environment, I thought, okay, well, I want my combined fellows to stay in touch, so let's do a little series on network epidemiology. But then I thought, well, if we're going to do an online series, there are a lot of people who might want to learn about this, so why not have a bigger reach? So then we partnered with the Vermont Complex System Center. Um, Santa Fe Institute sent out a bunch of announcements for us. And we got a whole bunch of people involved in this online series on understanding and exploring network epidemiology in the time of coronavirus. So uh, this is a four-week series, uh, meeting once a week. We have tutorials and seminars, but then we have discussion sessions, and um, we have people sign up to participate in group projects, and so they're all self-organizing on a Slack site. So the, the live online sessions are already oversubscribed, and we had many more excellent uh, dedicated applicants than we could accommodate. But we want, to, we want these resources to reach anyone who's interested. So we're putting everything on our YouTube channel. So you can get to our YouTube channel from the main Combine website. Combine is combine.umd.edu. Uh, you can also Google Combine UMD and find those videos. We had an excellent tutorial yesterday introducing us to network epidemiology by Laurent Hubert Dufresne from the University of Vermont, uh, who's done some really excellent work on network epidemiology in general and also on coronavirus or COVID-19. So Very check good. it out. And as always, uh, we will have these links on the episode page uh, for Michelle's uh, podcast. Uh, thank you, Michelle. This has been absolutely wonderful. Thank you. Production services and audio editing by Jared Janes Consulting. Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com.